He's what? You're a kid. Okay. You might be coming on a young adult pretty soon. So, yeah. But but you're still kind of in the childhood. So you got to think back as far as, like, maybe Dan. I mean, Dan's got to think back centuries ago. You got to think about when he was a child. I mean, you know, he has to think back pretty far. And don't get me started on you, Winita. I mean, you got to go back pretty far, too. So think about when you was a child. No, okay. All right. But as, remember, I mean, as, as a child, though, a, a newborn in particular, which we have some here, and we're going to have more newborns, but remember how parents played a vital role, a very instrumental role, in taking care of their baby. You were once a baby. You probably don't remember that. And you probably don't remember how much your parents took care of you. But as a parent, undoubtedly, you remember taking care of your child. You're reflecting on parenting, as anybody who's already a parent knows, it is not easy. And you're going to become even more parenting. You're going to have even more. I mean, it's not easy to be a parent, but it's one of the most important responsibilities we have as an adult. As parents, you know there's days when it is very, 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 we go very to the nth power, frustrating. There's days that's highly frustrating. There's days that's extremely tiresome and it's just full of worry. But, you know, ultimately we find it is rewarding. And let me just tell you, when your children grow up and they give you grandchildren, it's even more rewarding. So it's something that some of you have to look forward to years down the road, perhaps. But it's, it's just parents just have a large responsibility. But also recognize that as the years go by, your child becomes more independent and then begins to think they can do things on their own. Now, pridefully, they think that no one needs to take care of them. They can do it themselves. Now, as a teenager, we've all been there. And there's teenagers here today who are in that position right now, mostly sitting back there in the back seats. I mean, as a teenager, I distinctly remember, my mom's not here this morning, but she would be a, a we have a testimony to tell you, as a teenager, I knew more than my parents did. And there's teenagers here today, I can tell you to know more than their parents. I'm sorry to tell you. But here's the thing, as we recognize, and if you're not there yet, it will happen to you. Your teenager will come back. They know more than you right now, but eventually they grow older, understand what wisdom you did have, and they come back to you. So they kind of never leave dependency on you. Believe me, they come back. And they are kind of dependent. But here's the thing then. No matter what age you are, no matter what stage of parenting you may be in, or whether you're a teenager back there or not, today we begin a short series on Elijah. We begin a series in 1 Kings 17. That's where we begin because it introduces us to this man named Elijah, who happens to be my favorite prophet. Of all the prophets, Elijah happens to be my favorite. So today, we're going to venture in for a few weeks talking about Elijah and hearing and learning some of his stories and seeing how he ultimately learned how we need someone, whatever age we are, we need someone to help us, to guide us, to sustain us. And we can do that simply, as Elijah will illustrate, by trusting God. All we have to do is trust God that he will provide. He will sustain us. Now, a theme will emerge over the next couple of weeks, and the theme can be narrowed to this. Trusting God 
hear the word of God, and he will take care of you. Again, the text we're starting in today in our series of 1 Kings 17. This is an awesome story of God preparing Elijah, and then likewise, the story of Elijah's dependency on God. We're going to do something a little different today. Normally, we all stand together and we read a large section, a large chunk of Scripture at one time, but today we're going to do not do that. Today we're going to sit and listen and observe. And because of 1 Kings 17 actually begins to unfold in scenes. There's four scenes today we're going to look at in 1 Kings 17. The first scene happens to be just one verse. We'll explain that in a minute when we get there. But let's see how things unfold in the introduction of Elijah in all of Scripture as it appears in 1 Kings 17. So 1 Kings 17, verse 1, is scene 1. It's Elijah's announcement to Ahab, and Elijah predicts a drought. Here's the word. 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, a Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. That's it. That's the first scene. But as you begin to read down through 1 Kings, the prophet Elijah just suddenly and abruptly appears. He's not mentioned at all in the 16th chapter. As you get into chapter 17, verse 1, here he appears for the very first time in Scripture. So also helpful to know, as that's now the introduction to Elijah, it's also good to know that Elijah, the name he has, simply means the Lord is God. So the scriptures tell us almost nothing about Elijah's family, and he appears here really without any, any introduction. Again, nothing's told about him in, in the preceding chapters, all the way back to the beginning of the first Kings. All the way through chapter 16, there's nothing. But what we do know is Elijah settled in Gilead. And Gilead, as we may not be familiar with, it was a territory east of the Jordan River, extending from the northern end of the Dead Sea northward to the Yarmouk River, south of the Sea of Galilee. If you've been in, in, in uh, Israel, you might know where some of those things are, but if not, maybe a map later will help you understand where Gilead may be. But notice how verse 1 also does this. It refers to Elijah as a Tishbite. Now, what is a Tishbite? I mean, it is not altogether helpful for the verse to tell us he's a Tishbite because the exact location of Tishbe is not certain. I mean, scholars have little of any exactness or any certainty at all about where would be Tishbe. Now, some actually, some scholars actually offer a great different opinion and say maybe the maybe it's not Tishbe was meant by the scriptures. Maybe if you replace the I with an O and vocalize it that way as Toshbe, maybe that's what they mean because Toshbe is a word that actually just means settler. So maybe they just mean Toshbe, perhaps, says Elijah then being a seller. But it does refer to the Tishbite, but no exactness is given to us about what that may mean or where that may be. But we need not be overly concerned about the exactness, maybe, of a Tishbe or a Tishbite, because its meaning really is not even important to the story. Notice how verse 1 also introduces us to another person of character that we need to know about, and that is Ahab. Ahab is also mentioned in the first verse. Now, what we know about Ahab is rather certain. The scriptures do allude to him and talk about him from time to time. In fact, the preceding chapter, chapter 16, verses 19 through 24, 
document the fact that he reigned over Israel for 22 years. He was the king at this moment in Israel. And not just this particular moment, for 22 years he was the king. We also know that Ahab married Jezebel, the daughter of Isabel, which is the king of Sidonians. He went to serve Baal, and he worshipped him. He erected a altar for Baal, in which he built in Samaria, and Ahab also made the Asherah. So it's stated that at the summary of chapter 16 in verse 33, it's given to us an indication of the kind of king that Ahab was. It says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings in Israel who before him. So we could obviously conclude he wasn't a good king. I mean, he was a horrible king. I mean, he worshipped false gods and actually would prefer everybody in Israel to worship the false gods, particularly Baal, who he worshipped. So he did more to provoke the Lord to anger than any other king. Suffice it to say, he was horrible. So then having now identified two of the major characters, Elijah and Ahab, maybe we could reword the first verse and paraphrase a bit. Here's what we could say about the first verse in a different manner. Elijah, verse 1, living in Gilead east of the Jordan River, walked westward to Samaria, burst into King Ahab's palace, identified himself as a servant of the Lord God of Israel, hurled an ultimatum at King Ahab, and confidently declared that there would be neither dew nor rain because God had promised to withhold these from the land for these years. Doesn't define the amount of years. But we find out later that these years could actually be three and a half years, as actually mentioned in the New Testament in James chapter 5 or 7 and in Luke chapter 5 verse 4 verse 25. We also have the benefit of knowing it was three years by the next chapter, which we'll get into next week. So three and a half years is the time of no rain, not even dew. Have you noticed with the cooler weather, there's dew settling upon the ground I mean, the grass is growing a little bit. Every morning I get up, I have to go to work, and I have always have to clear off my windshield now because the dew settled on it. It's, it's wet. It's like it has rained, but it hasn't rained. So, but Elijah's saying there's going to be no rain nor even dew for these years, which happens to be now for three and a half years. No moisture. So then having made this dramatic announcement now to King Ahab and the wicked Jezebel by his side, I'm sure, Elijah was now told to leave Samaria, return eastward, and hide in a brook. But that's going to be in the next particular scene. So let's now advance to the scene and see what it's telling us about the fact that Elijah has to run and hide. Look at scene 2, verses 2 through 7. And the Lord, the word of the Lord came to him, as to Elijah. He said, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kerah, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens there to feed you. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kerah that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because why? There's no rain in the land. I mean, there was a drought condition, three and a half years, what he told the king. So he's told the king, Ahab, 
There's going to be no rain, no moisture, no dew. There's nothing going to happen for three and a half years. We find in the, after the announcement, Elijah was told to leave by the Lord to Samaria. He returned eastward. He hid in a ravine, the brook Kareth, as defined in Scripture, east of the Jordan River. But a good question to maybe ask is, why does he have to hide? Why hide? The many scholars suggest that Elijah had to hide because he would soon be hunted by the king. I mean, he'd made this ultimatum, there's no rain, and maybe the king would come after him. Others contend it was not about hiding from the king for being hunted. Others would suggest that it was a time for God to season his messenger and prepare him for what he had for Elijah to do next. But either way, it happens to be an interesting sequence of events. And leads us then to a timeout, because now we need to consider ourselves in the scene. Put yourself in a situation where God has told you to go to king and tell the king, the president, whoever, there's going to be any rain for three and a half years. Imagine God telling you then to go to a brook, to stream of water, to live while the birds, the ravens, feed you. The birds are actually going to feed you. Provide you with the nourishment you need. I mean, can we actually put ourselves in that scene? Because that seems kind of crazy. A bit far-fetched. And I'm not sure we can actually relate to actually being told by God to go to a ravine, to live there for a while, and allow the birds to feed you. I, I, I'm not sure we can relate to it, partly because many times we don't even want to leave our home. We get very comfortable in our lives and what we're doing. So at times, we don't even leave the house, let alone going to the wilderness being fed by some birds, if God should tell us so. So it makes us ponder then, like, how many of us would have gone to the brook Kareth and lived according to the word of the Lord? We're going to emphasize for a moment the word of the Lord, because the word of the Lord is Elijah receiving the the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is telling him to do these things. So ask yourself then, just for a quick application, do I live according to the word of the Lord? I mean, do I look at the scripture? Do I listen when messages? Do I, do I massage the word to the point where I recognize the Lord speaking to me? And when he speaks to me, am I obedient? Do do I live according to the word of the Lord? Because we can't just casually dismiss the fact that in verse 2 and now in verse 5, it states the word of the Lord came to Elijah. So that means the sending of Elijah to the brook Kareth, east of the Jordan, where scholars believe to be a 15-mile journey, on foot, they like he took a car to get there, is not just some crazy notion that Elijah had after he confronted the king. I mean, he told them no rain, and like he just had this crazy notion, okay, I told the king no rain, I better on foot hurry up and get out of here. That has to be a 15-mile journey. God told him to go. It was the word of the Lord that came to Elijah. I mean, Elijah didn't ponder and plan a vacation to the brook Kareth, guided his own efforts, like a manner we would if we're going to go vacation and have fun in the sun. He didn't plan such an activity. 
But the Lord told him to go. I mean, Elijah followed the word of the Lord and obediently went to the stream of water and allowed the ravens to feed him. Now, show of hands, how many have been fed by birds? Anybody been fed by birds? Declan, no? James, you like to go camping. Been to the bird? The bird feed you? No, nobody's been fed by birds. Elijah's being fed by a raven. He, he leaves as the Lord tells him to go. To some people, this would sound completely absurd. Actually, it does to me. I'm reading the scriptures. I know it to be true. It still sounds absurd to go to a brook that's going to dry up because there's going to be no rain and the Lord's going to feed you with the bird. Doesn't it sound absurd? It sounds crazy. You run out of food. But to Elijah, here's the thing. But to Elijah, receiving, man, he's receiving the word of the Lord. As he's receiving the word of the Lord, they instructed him to do all these different things. To people, it sounded absurd, but to Elijah, it must have sounded like sweet music as he was guided, instructed, and cared for by the Lord. I mean, after all, remember, his name does mean the Lord is God. And he is living up to his name by receiving the word of the Lord and obediently following. Now, that's noteworthy that we kind of emphasize for a little bit the word of the Lord because it's going to come back and play after a while. I'm going to suggest to you it's not accidental, it's not coincidental, it's rather intentional and meaningful. We'll come back to that. But let's go to the third scene. Scene number three happens to be in verses 8 through 16. It tells us more of the story. Then the word of the Lord, there it is again already, came to him. Arise. Go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks. And I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Well, verse 13, Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. How long was that? Three and a half years. Thanks for playing. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her husband, or her household, ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord. And he spoke by Elijah. So in this particular scene, remember, the, the brook dries up. I mean, it's got to obviously dry up because there's no rain, right? I mean, so it, it's just a drought conditions. I mean, if you've lived very long at all, you may have been in some sort of drought condition. We lived in Texas for 12 years, 
One particular summer, we had no rain for three months. We had we had 10 acres on our property in Texas. We had a rather small pond that provided some water for cattle and you know irrigation for our garden and stuff like that. But after three months of no rain, that pond dried up. It got to the point where it's so low I could drive across it. So that's what happens during drought conditions. So notice the drought conditions, there's no moisture in the water for three and a half years in the midst of all this happening, and now Elijah's told to go. Now notice, he's got to be parched. I mean, there's no water, there's no moisture. And and notice in in this segment, scene three, it reveals once again the word of the Lord came to Elijah. We keep getting this over and over again. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, instructing him now to move to another place, what happened to be Zarephath and Sidon. Okay, Zarephath and Sidon. There has to be an interesting storyline beginning to develop. Again, imagine. Elijah is at the brook. It dries up. He's being fed by ravens. He's told now to go to Zarephath and Sidon. It's a 15-mile journey, remember. Put yourself in his shoes for just a moment. I mean, wouldn't you be thirsty? I mean, there's no rain, no water. You got a brook that's drying up. You're being fed by these silly ravens. And all of a sudden, God tells you to go to a new town. It's a 15-mile journey. You've got to be thirsty. I mean, look, I would be so thirsty. Listen to me. I would actually drink a diet root beer. That stuff is disgusting. I would be so thirsty I would drink after somebody else. If they had a straw, I'd let them touch it and I'd still drink it. That's how thirsty I would be. You know what I'm talking about. I can't stand that stuff. Somebody touched my straw, I ain't using it no more. Somebody drink my drink, it's theirs. I'll be so thirsty at a 15-mile journey with no rain, no water, I would do it. I would actually drink somebody else's water. That's how thirsty we would be. So Elijah then, I mean, he's parched. I mean, he's thirsty from his travels. He arrives to the town gate. He goes to the town gate. He sees a widow. What was she doing? She was gathering sticks to build a fire for cooking. Now, at that point, he apparently doesn't know she's going to be the one to provide him the food. But thirsty from his travels, he asked her, as we all would be, for a little jar of water. Now you're thinking, wait a minute. Isn't it kind of rude for him to ask for a jar of water when he sees this woman who's a widow gathering sticks? Isn't it kind of rude? Well, not exactly. Because it was known then, it was kind of common courtesy in the world at that time for a stranger to walk up on the scene, you would offer them water. You're thinking, well, okay, wait a minute. Didn't you say there's a drought in the water? Yes. Even though the drought had reached the area of Phoenicia, the springs in Zarephath were actually fed by the peaks of the Lebanon mountains. And there would be a string of water that would continue to come while the others had dried up. So while the widow begins to explain everything to Elijah for predicament, gathering sticks, he actually does receive a drink of water. But as he gets the drink of water, she begins to explain to him again, she's gathering sticks. She has very little flour. She has very little oil. She's gathering sticks to make her last meal. If I'm, if I'm seeing this, I'm Elijah going 15 miles. First of all, I had to go to this brook that dried up. I had to tell the king there was going to be no rain. I had to hide for a while or whatever. And then 
I, I'm being fed by these birds. Now I go to Zarephath. I get a little bit of water. I'm really thirsty. I'm really hungry. And now the widow tells me she's on her last bit of food for her and her son to have to die. Honestly, I'm looking at it. If I'm Elijah, I'm thinking, what's up with this? I think God sent me here to find food and water? And I mean a, a widow lady who's on her last bit of nourishment for herself and her son who is about to die? This is simply unbelievable. But doesn't God do that sometimes? Stretches to the point where he wants to massage you to be a worthy vessel servant for him? He does do that. But we also see something else happening here. Because all of this seems to be unbelievable. We see something happening where he actually sends Elijah to a widow gathering her last meal. We actually find a truth that emerges from the text. That God does not send people just anywhere. And he never, he never makes mistakes. That's worth repeating. God does not send people just anywhere. It's all intentional. And he never makes mistakes. So we think about that truth that emerges from the story. We're thinking, okay, I see what's happening. It does seem kind of unbelievable. But there must be more to the story. So what is happening here? What, what is maybe behind the scenes that we need to know? And here's what it is. This town, Zarephath, was located on the Mediterranean Sea about halfway between two Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon. Sidon is actually mentioned in the verse. But at this point in history, the town Zarephath was controlled by Sidon, which happens to be the center of Baal worship. So sending Elijah then to Phoenicia, the very center of Baal worship to Sidon, and telling him he would find sustenance there from a widow, who, by the way, a widow was always the poorest of the land, may seem like a rather unusual way to provide for him, and it is unusual. But there's more, so there's something behind the scenes, greatly significant, that's building up that you must be aware of. And it's something we cannot miss. Because what we're about to have, as he's landed in the middle of the worship of Baal, is an in-your-face moment, Baal. Recall that Ahab, the king, married Jezebel. Jezebel's father, I mentioned earlier, was the king of the Sidonians, the leader of Baal worship. So what's happening here is God just commanded Elijah, his servant, to go directly to the center of Baal worship. It's purely intentional. God provides Elijah all the things he needs on Jezebel's home turf of Sidon. It is no mistake. God has sent Elijah directly to confront Baal. And it will eventually, not ultimately in this chapter, but certainly in the next, be an in-your-face moment for Baal. That false God. Again, God has commanded a widow now to supply Elijah with food. And it just seemed like a highly unusual thing to do. I mean, it seems, there's another instance where it seems absurd to us how things unfold. But it's no accident, it's no coincidence when Elijah meets 
that goes to the city. He needs a whittle gathering sticks. The, the encounter was not happenstance. It was all by God to be done in a certain way. It seems to suggest that God is in control of all these things happening, and certainly he is. But we need to finish the story to see what else is going to happen before we actually finally conclude and apply. So let's go to scene number four. We see God in control. Elijah went to Zarephath. He's met this woman. She can provide him some sustenance if she can do so. Scene number four, the end of the scripture, verse 17, I mean, chapter 17, 1 Kings, look at verse 17, verse 24, where Elijah now raises the widow's son. After this son of the woman, the mistress of the house, the son became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, Why have you, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And Elijah said to her, Give me your son. And he took, his, he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his bed. And now Elijah cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, why have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Notice the widow blamed Elijah, Elijah blamed God. Verse 21. Then he stretched, Elijah did. Elijah stretched himself upon the child, not once, not twice, three times, and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And Lord, listen to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came unto him again, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word the Lord in your mouth is truth. Wow. But just when everything started to go well, a complication again arises. The son of the woman, the widow, with whom Elijah is staying, gets ill and stops breathing. As I mentioned, his mother, the widow, blames Elijah. He said, did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? The child's mother blames Elijah. Who's Elijah blame? He blames God. Now, interestingly, the prophet then takes the child to his room and lays him on his bed. He then cries out to God, to Yahweh, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy upon this, this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Elijah charges God with killing the widow's son, which is a sensitive reader like us is taken back by such a charge. But then we notice in verses 21 through 23, Elijah stretches himself upon the widow's son three times and asks the Lord to return to spirit and breath. Verse 22 is a very important start or segment of the story. The narrator says the Lord hears Elijah's cry. That declaration should stand out to us. I mean, of what voice can hear the Lord? Or what voice can the Lord hear? I mean, can the Lord hear all of our voices? Yes, of course he can. Can the Lord hear the voice of a bell worshiper? Yes, he can hear it. But we act accordingly? Hmm. 
But also the decoration stands up because notice whom Elijah is crying out to. I mean, Elijah is in the center of Baal worship territory. Okay? He's not crying out, Baal, will you help this son revive him? He's not. He's crying out only to God. He's crying out to the Lord God of Israel. Elijah cries out to the Lord who has spoken and directed him by the word of the Lord on many occasions. Uh, Elijah cries out to God, the one and only God, in the center of a region that cries out to the fertility God, Baal. He didn't call upon Baal in the region that Baal's worship. He still cries out to only the God, the Lord. And what is God's response? Verse 22, the Lord hears Elijah's cry. The boy's life returned to him. Verse 23, Elijah picked him up, the boy, carried him to his mother. The widow had accused Elijah previously, but we cannot miss the reaction. Verse 24, she exclaims, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord for your mouth is the truth. And then notice how the story just stops. It just ends. I mean, ignoring the emotion that must have overwhelmed the widow. I mean, her son had died. Now he's come back to life. What kind of emotion would that be? It's, it's ignored. I mean, she says that one statement, then it's done. The narrator closes the curtain on Elijah's soldier in the side with this simple statement about the prophet. Now she knows he must be a man of God. It just ends. We're about to go into chapter 18. It's going to be next week, not today, but that's it. That's all of chapter 17 you get. That's all the story we receive. So as the abruptly kind of ends with the child being healed and with the woman just recognizing Elijah's man of God and nothing else, we say, well, what does that mean? I mean, how can we now take this powerful story and apply it to our lives? I mean, that's the great question we need to be asking ourselves. Because all along now we've been wondering why Elijah was first of all sent to Ahab. He had declared no rain. Why he went to this brook of Kareth, being fed by ravens when the, the stream of water dries up because of no rain. Then God sent him to Zarephath. He meets a widow who has her last supply of food. And then all of a sudden is an amazingly bottomless pit of food, of oil and flour. And then her son dies and he revives him. I mean, what, what is all this meaning to us? What's this story? How is it relevant? What is the purpose? What is the rest of the story that God wants us to see? What is God telling us through this particular story pertaining to Elijah, his prophet? Well, the answer is this. God, Yahweh, his personal name, is telling everyone, anyone willing to listen, there is only one God. There is only one. One and only. And the people in and around Zarephath, Sidon, where they worshipped Baal, a fertility God, he had to make it known to these people. There's truly only one God. There's only one. Elijah was essentially following the word of God for God to make a pronouncement in the center of Baal worship. There's only one. It's not you. It is me. I'm God. 
But notice in the narrative, it, it, it's clear to see how things begin to unfold. It, five times in just 24 verses, the word of the Lord is used. Verse 2, verse 5, verse 8, verse 16, verse 24. On top of that, 14 times the word Lord, and not just Lord. I mean, it ain't just capital L, small O, small R, or small D. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see all capital letters of Lord in Scripture, it's highly meaningful because referring to God's personal name, Yahweh. So 14 times in 24 verses, all capital letters, Lord, is used. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, verse 8, verse 12, twice in 14, verse 16, twice in verse 20, verse twice in 21, 22, and 24. Two times in these verses is Lord God of Israel. So I tell you all that because I want you to hear this. Not so subtly is God directing people to the point that there's only one God. He will sustain you. We must trust him. We must submit to him and rely solely on his word. As I mentioned in the beginning, a theme does emerge you will have over the next couple of weeks. Trust in God, hear the word of God, and he will take care of you. Chapter 17 actually displays all these different things. Elijah was trusting God. He was certainly hearing the word of the Lord. And God did take care of his servant. I mean, Yahweh is the living God who feeds the hungry, cares for the helpless, has power to give or take life. Now, as we begin to apply all that we learned today from this story in 1 Kings 17, there's three things that we should and can do when we begin to position our lives to fully trust God, three things that we can and should do. Here they are rather quickly. First is this. When you trust God, you will experience God's goodness. No other source will sustain you. Recognize the source of your blessings and your goodness is God. It is only God in which your blessings come. You are blessed from God. And you experience God's goodness. He is so incredibly good to us. He is so good to us. There's so many times we can't even count how many times God is good to us. And we, for most of them, take it for granted. So we experience God's goodness. The second thing is to acknowledge your source of provision. God's blessings will go beyond expectation. I mean, in the in the story, just when Elijah asked for water and expected some bread, he ultimately received in the widow a bottom of supply of flour and oil. What that means is that when, when God blesses a little, it can go a great way, even beyond expectation. And the third thing then is affirm the sufficiency of the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is completely trustworthy and totally sufficient. Even further, only God has the power to restore. I mean, God is sufficient. He's all we need. There's no other source you need. It is God. He is sufficient. I mean, who can send the rain? Who can control nature? Only God. Who can command the raven to feed and have control over the animal? Only God. 
who can sustain and provide an endless supply of food in the account? Only God. Who can revive a widow's son from the dead? Only God. All these things happen because God is mighty and powerful. It's only God. It is not Baal. It's like in your face, Baal, all these things can happen because I'm God, you're not. That's what we find in the story. We have the beginning of an in-your-face moment that will take us into a wonderful story next week in chapter 18. I mean, I love chapter 17, but get with me, 18 is incredible. Next week is an incredible story. You're going to definitely see the power of God, the trust of Elijah. He has a God. And in-your-face Baal. But that's next week. But this week, remember, only one God exists with all the power to rule over nature and life and death are commanded to have no other gods before him. There's only one God. So today, reflect upon your life. Are you confident in the power of God to sustain you? Would you follow God if your blessings just kind of ceased? And do others actually see your confidence that you have in God, because they should. Yesterday at the Relay for Life, we were getting ready to have our luminaria, which is when you have a wonderful ceremony. You call out names of people who've had cancer and are still fighting that battle. And their names are called out in honor of. So like in honor of Nora or in honor of anybody who's had cancer. It's an in honor of Juanita. I mean, all these different names are called out. An endless supply of names, if you will, that are in honor. There's also another list that's called out by name for those who've lost a battle. In memory of. It's not in honor of. In honor of for those still living fighting. In memory of those who've lost a battle. In memory of. They asked me to do a prayer. Before the calling of the names and reading of the names. It's quite an extensive list. The only thing I could think of when I began to pray is how we have one true mighty God. Who, when you're in a battle of life, how he will sustain you, provide for you, carry you through it. But it's cancer, financial, whatever it may be. I mean, God is always there. In the prayer, I remembered and I said the words that God will never leave us, can never forsake us. That's our God. He's always with us. So today, remember, as we're going through any aspect of life, the story of Elijah or anything here today, let it be something where you recognize there's one person I can truly trust. It's God. God's going to sustain me. He's going to, uh, he's going to provide for me. All I have to do is submit to him and rely on his word. And he's going to be there. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. That's our God. That's Elijah's God. That's our God. That's the only God. His name is Yahweh. Father. We thank you for this message today and the series which we embark upon and how we can learn from it and begin to apply. 
We thank you, Lord, for the message today as it tells us our true sustainer, our provider. I pray for all of us to recognize today there's only one source that will get us through life. A lot of times, Lord, we think we can depend on self or a loved one, brother, sister, parent, whatever. But, Lord, we always know as they may fail us, we can always depend on you and you'll be there for us. So today, Lord, let's just fully receive that and just digest upon that. We thank you for the series that we're having and how your word speaks to all of us. Let us hear the word of the Lord and thank you for giving it to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.